This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. And we are slowly walking with Jesus on the way to the cross. And all the worship that rises out of our hearts, all of our rejoicing, all of our happiness in God has been won for us at a terrible price. It cost God his own son to gather us as his children. And it is so good for our souls to walk with Jesus and see what he endured for our sakes. And our prayer is that this awakens our love for Christ in return, that this grows our faith as we see how deep the love of God is for us in Christ. So this afternoon, we are turning to Mark chapter 15, the first 15 verses, meditating on Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Listen to the word of the Lord. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, they led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So, again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Oh, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Our story begins at dawn. The high priests and the Jewish council has been meeting all night, desperate to deal with Jesus before the Passover feast comes. They want to deal with this guy and get rid of him before there's any kind of trouble. And as the sun rises, they make their final plans. They gather together as a council and determine the best way that they can accuse Jesus so they can get rid of him. And the clock is ticking because in Roman justice, the courts opened at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they went till 9 o'clock. So the governor could deal with 
the business of justice and get on with his other activities. So they needed to meet with Pilate first thing in the morning. These guys are in a hurry, and they have brought many false witnesses against Jesus, many lying charges against him, and nothing has stuck until Jesus amazingly admits that he is the Messiah. And the high priest tears his robes and says, this is shocking blasphemy. We don't need to hear any more from this guy. He must be condemned to death. He does not deserve to live anymore. But, of course, the Romans could care less about blasphemy. They didn't care about the Jewish religion. It was strange to them. It was none of their business. They could care less about this charge. So these leaders need to find a way to reformulate the charge against Jesus so that it will call down the wrath of the Roman governor. And the Jews were not permitted to execute people. That was the prerogative of the Romans alone. They let the local leaders deal with all local matters, but executing people was the privilege of the Roman state. And one reason for this was the Romans did not want any Roman sympathizers being executed by local authorities. So only the Romans could execute people. Now, I suppose the the Jewish leaders could have uh, murdered Jesus in in an alley or have him stoned to death and deal with the effects afterwards. But it was very important to them that Jesus be dealt with by the Roman authorities. Because once the Romans had got their hands on Jesus, the movement would be dead and finished. No one would dare to claim themselves as the follower of this Messiah if he had been condemned by Rome. Because to do so, of course, was to invite Roman justice on your own head. And no one wanted to deal with that. So if we can get Rome to destroy Jesus and have him executed, this thing will be done and finished and we can wash our hands of this unpleasant affair. The Roman governor was named Pontius Pilate. His headquarters was not in Jerusalem. It was in the coastal city of Caesarea. But once a year at the Passover time, he would camp out in Jerusalem to oversee public order because Passover was always a little edgy, always a little difficult. It was a powder keg, and the Roman governor needed to be personally present to ensure that riots and public disorder did not break out. Pilate served as the governor of Judea for 10 years, from the years 26 to 36 AD. He was a knight of the equestrian class. He wasn't one of the 600 senatorial families He was either from minor nobility or a retired military officer. And as such, he gets a political posting, but it is pretty much the worst job you can have in the Roman government. It really sucked being the governor of Judea because there were constant headaches. These people hated you. You could see it in their eyes as you walked down the street. You knew that if you ate at a Jewish restaurant, they were probably spitting in your food in the kitchen And they would seize any opportunity to assassinate you, harass you, and cause as much difficulty for you as possible. And they despised you as pagans and idolaters. They treated you as ritually unclean. And Pilate would only have accepted this job as prefect of Judea if it was the last option available to him. 
This is his assignment. And in 26 AD, Pilate and his wife show up in Judea to take over the governorship. Now, actually, we do know a little bit about Pilate from outside the gospel accounts. There were Jewish historians, Philo and Josephus, who wrote years later about how much they hated Pilate and what a terrible governor he was. Pilate had a habit of antagonizing and provoking the Jews. He just enjoyed jabbing his finger in their eyes. And he had a habit of antagonizing them and then creating situations where he proved indecisive and had to back down. Here's one story that had happened earlier in his governorship. Under cover of night, Pilate had brought Roman standards into Jerusalem. These were like the big poles that the Roman troops carried around. And these were extremely offensive to the Jews because they had inscriptions and images on them that the Jewish people considered idolatrous. And here's Pilate. He's doing it under cover of night, so he knows he's doing something sneaky. He's bringing these idolatrous images into the holy city. And the Jewish people are outraged. And they actually marched the 70 miles to Caesarea, this huge delegation, and they camped outside Pilate's headquarters there for five days, demanding that he remove these standards. So Pilate said, meet me in the arena and I will judge this case. So this large Jewish delegation showed up in the arena in Caesarea, and Pilate quietly had the arena surrounded by his soldiers. And at the given moment, the soldiers sprang out with their swords drawn and threatened to execute the whole crowd unless they backed down. But the Jews called Pilate's bluff, and to a man, they bared their throats and said, go ahead, cut our throats, we would rather die than have these idolatrous standards in our city. And at that critical moment, Pilate hesitated. Because if there was a bloodbath, it would go back to the emperor, and if there was one thing the emperor could not tolerate, it was riots and public disorder in this far-flung province. And so Pilate was forced to back down and remove these standards from Jerusalem. And these stories we have of Pilate fit very well with the image we get in Mark and the other gospel writers of a man who is weak and um, somewhat petty and unable to really work his will over these annoying, aggravating Jewish people. His job is to maintain order. So he doesn't care about any of this Jewish religious business In fact, Pilate's um, patron in Rome was notoriously anti-Semitic. And so we can guess Pilate had a lot of contempt towards the Jews himself. Did not care about their religion, and I doubt he made the effort to even learn about it. So all this Messiah, Son of God stuff, did not care. So the Jews reformulate their charge in such a way that it is going to catch the ear of the Roman governor. And they accuse Jesus of claiming to be the king of of the Jews. Now that is a charge that gets Pilate's attention. Because anyone in their provinces who goes around and calling themselves the king is a direct threat not only to Pilate, but to the emperor himself. This cannot be tolerated and it must be stamped out. So Pilate, they are sure, is going to react badly to this charge. The first thing we see in our text today is that the accused is silent. The accused is silent. With Roman directness, Pilate brings the charge to Jesus. So, 
Is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus has this strange answer as he stands there calmly looking at Pilate. He says, you have said so. As you say, you're the one who says this. It's a very ambiguous, ambivalent kind of reply. Jesus is not denying the charge, but it's as if he's saying there's a lot more to this King of the Jews title than you, Pilate, even realize, or even the people who are accusing me realize. The idea of kingship in the ancient world meant a powerful liberator who would rescue the people by slaughtering others. That was the model that Rome had, and this was the model that the Jews and their freedom fighters had. Jesus is not this sort of king. He's not going to ride in on a white horse, slamming people left and right with his sword. Jesus is the kind of king, not the kind who kills others for the kingdom, but who dies himself for his people. He's modeling what true kingship is. The representative of his people who goes and dies to save them. And this title, King of the Jews, occurs again and again in Mark chapter 15. And in the end, this is what is written on the signboard over Jesus when he hangs on the cross. The King of the Jews. Many, many accusations are made against Jesus, and the chief priests are interrupting each other, trying to bring up different things they can use to bring Jesus down. He's subverting our nation. He's telling us not to pay taxes. All these accusations are being brought against Jesus, and Pilate is surprised that Jesus is not defending himself. Jesus does not say a word to these accusations. He is on trial for his life. The threat is execution and not an ordinary execution where, say, your head gets cut off. Jesus is facing the horror of crucifixion. And if you or I were in that situation, facing that kind of fate, we would be scrabbling and coming up with every possible defense we could to stave off this terrible fate. And Jesus is standing there calmly as all these accusations are being made and his lips are closed. And Pilate is amazed at this fact. Many people are amazed in the Gospel of Mark because of what Jesus says or what he does. And again and again we read, people were amazed at Jesus and his words or his signs. And here is Pilate amazed at what Jesus does not do. He's amazed at what Jesus does not say. Perhaps this is one of the greatest miracles in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is standing before his accusers, and he is silent. And this, of course, fulfills Isaiah chapter 53, that glorious passage about the suffering servant of God. And in verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. There's no resistance 
on Jesus' part as he faces his death. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac in the book of Genesis? Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his son. And so early in the morning, he goes out with the donkeys and the servants and the son. And the son, his son Isaac, carries the wood to the top of the mountain. And then his father asks him to climb on the altar and allow himself to be bound. And amazingly, such is Isaac's perfect trust in Abraham. He does not resist. Abraham does not have to chase him down. He doesn't have to rustle him onto the altar. He's not struggling as the knife is laid against his throat. And this is what Christ is doing, willingly standing and receiving all these accusations that deserve the death penalty on his own head. In the book of Mark, Jesus is incredibly active. He's a very busy person in this gospel, striding throughout the land, laying hands on people, giving words of healing, forgiving sins, stilling storms, casting out legions of demons, feeding multitudes. And here, in this part of Mark, toward the end of Mark, Jesus becomes passive. Things are happening to Jesus. He's being bound and led away and handed over again and again. Jesus is allowing things to happen to him. And here he is, this miracle worker, the son of God, the one who was going to judge the living and the dead, allowing himself to stand before a weak earthly judge and to bow his head and receive these accusations upon himself. We use this term, the passion. It comes from the same root as passive, to suffer. The passion of Christ, he is suffering. Serving God passively is a lot more difficult than serving God actively. You know that? It's not that hard, in comparison, to charge to the other side of the world and attempt great things for God. But to be silent and submit yourself to God's sovereign plan and receive pain and willingly suffer is extremely difficult. And few of us, perhaps none of us, are able to keep silent as we suffer. But Jesus does. He is so committed to trusting God. But amazingly, you get the sense as you read Mark chapter 15 that although Jesus is passive, he is in complete control over everything that is happening to him. He's not weak, he's meek. You know the difference between those words. Meekness means strength under control. Jesus is strong as he sets his face like flint towards God's call in his life, but it's under control. He's controlling himself, and it feels like he's really controlling everything that happens around him. Pilate thought he was the man in control. Pilate held the imperium. That meant that as the direct governor of Rome, he had total control over everything that happened in his realm. If you were the governor of a state under military control, There was no criminal code like there was in Rome. Anyone who was not a Roman citizen, there was no book of laws that applied to them. It was left to the complete discretion of the prefect 
how you were judged. Whatever he felt like doing, as long as it served his purpose of maintaining public order in the realm, he could do whatever he liked to you. And Pilate holds the imperium. And he has the right to decide whatever happens in his realm. But as we'll see, Pilate is not quite so in control of the situation as he thinks. And strangely, this prisoner bound before Pilate is more free than Pilate himself. Because nothing is happening to Jesus that he is not choosing to happen to him. Jesus does not need to be bound. He does not need to be strapped onto the altar. Jesus is willingly, knowingly going to his death. And he is reaching out to pick up the cup of suffering himself. No one is forcing it to his lips. Jesus, out of love for us and submission to God, is willingly going to die for his people. Because he knows what is happening to him is part of God's plan of salvation. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. This is Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Weeks later, after these events have happened, Peter is preaching to the very people, the very crowds who have cried out for Christ to be crucified. Uh, Let's see, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. We're in Acts 2, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now listen to this. This man was handed over to you. That handed over phrase we see again and again in Mark's account. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And so in Peter's sermon, he's saying there are really two things that are happening here. There are the actions of evil men, the Jewish leaders, the Roman governor. But behind those actions of evil men is the all-sovereign hand of God. And the crucifixion, on the one hand, is a horrible testimony to the malice and hatred of human beings. But at the same time, it is the highest monument to the love of God. And somehow, in a way that we cannot understand, God the Father is orchestrating all the events of the crucifixion, and Jesus is willingly submitting himself to the Father's plan. And whatever people might do to Jesus, he is submitting because he knows, this is the will of my Father. And so, because this is the plan of God, Christ is silent. He chooses not to resist what is happening to him. He deliberately chooses to go along with this stream that is going to lead towards his death. And he stands there and many accusations are being made against him. Accusation after accusation is being thrown in his face and he stands there with bowed head and he receives them all. They all land on him, and as it were, he accepts them. By refusing to defend himself, he's tacitly taking these accusations on himself. And he is silent. We know, if you follow Jesus, you know what it is to be accused, because we have an enemy who is the accuser of the brethren. 
And again and again, he flings accusations into our faces. Many, many accusations. But unlike with Jesus, he does not need false witnesses. He does not need trumped-up charges because we have provided him out of our own free will with a mountain of evidence against us. There are documents, there are tapes, there is no resisting these accusations. And we too are silent before the accusations of Satan because there is nothing we can do to defend ourselves. And he is bringing us before the judgment seat of God with a horrifying case against us. And we face condemnation and judgment. And Jesus, by standing there receiving these accusations, is standing not so much before this human governor Pilate as before the judgment seat of God, the king of Israel, the true king of Israel on behalf of his people, is standing before God's judgment, silently accepting all of the accusations of the enemy of God's law against us. He does not resist. He takes them all on his own shoulders. This is what Christ does as our advocate, our defense lawyer, the one who represents us. He says, look, the case against you is terrible. There is no loophole. There is no way you can possibly wriggle out of it. There's only one way of safety. We are going to admit all the charges. But... I'm going to sign my own name to them all. I'm going to dip my pen in the red ink of my own blood and write Jesus Christ over every accusation against you. So that when Satan comes calling and reminds us of the accusations, we don't have to try to wriggle out of them. They are true. They are very true. But something greater has happened. Martin Luther, the German reformer, he would have this issue where he would be lying in bed trying to sleep after a hard day, and then the devil would start poking him and remind him of the many sins that he committed even that day. And here's how Luther would respond. He would say, first of all, Satan, you're not such a great saint yourself. You've got your own issues. Why are you dealing with me? And then he would say, I know you have this long list of accusations, Satan, and in fact, you forgot a few. Let me add a few to your list. There's some things that I've remembered that even you have forgotten. But Jesus Christ has died for me, and I've been justified by his blood, so I do not have to fear the accusations of the enemy. I can look myself in the mirror without guilt, without shame, without condemnation, because Jesus Christ has taken all those accusations upon himself. This is how God deals with our sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug where we have to worry, is it ever going to come out again to haunt me? He deals with it once for all by sending his son who willingly takes on himself the guilt that we all bear. This is what Jesus is doing. And so the accused, gloriously, the accused is silent. And then we see in this story that the guilty is released. Here's Pilate in the middle of this trial, and it's very strange to him that the defendant is not defending himself. The Romans had a standard system of a trial. There was an accusation, there was evidence, there was defense, and there was a verdict, 
And this strange Jewish prophet is not playing along. He's refusing to defend himself. And Pilate knows there is something weird about this case. He senses he's not an idiot. He knows that the high priests are acting out of self-interests. They're full of envy of the success of this prophet, and they want him dead and out of the way. He knows what's going on. But strangely, Jesus is not defending himself. But there may be a way out for Pilate because as this proceeding is going on, a crowd comes up the hill into the courtyard, the public courtyard where the trial is being, is being held, and they interrupt the proceedings. And they remind Pilate of a peculiar custom that he had introduced, that once a year at the Passover festival, he would release a condemned prisoner of the people's choosing. Now, this sounds like an absolutely terrible idea, doesn't it? Why on earth would you release a criminal once a year? It shows that Pilate was in a difficult situation, and this was a tense time of the year where terrible things could happen, and this was one way that he could ease off the pressure a little bit. And they remind Pilate, hey, Pilate, this is the day. It's the day before Passover. This is the time for you to release a prisoner as you have promised. And Pilate sees this as his chance, and he asks, ah, would you like me to release the one that you call the king of the Jews? But the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, have planned well. And they have prepared the crowd to ask, not for Jesus, but for someone named Barabbas. You can read about Barabbas in verse 7 there. This man Barabbas, who was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. There were a lot of what were called social bandits at this time in Israel. They were outlaws, peasants who had been driven off the land. They'd lost their farm, and they're going about robbing and killing. They hate the high taxes. They're being squeezed not only by Rome, but by the, 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 um, the elite of the land. And they are going about on this campaign of guerrilla warfare. They are robbing caravans. They are murdering landowners, and they are fomenting rebellion against Rome. And Barabbas has been caught in some uprising in the city. You have to understand that although to Rome, this guy is a terrorist, to the ordinary Jew, Barabbas would have been a folk hero. Because Barabbas is doing what we all dream of doing, meeting violence with violence. And Barabbas is the man of the iron fist, and he is going about punching Rome in the teeth. And the people would have loved that about Barabbas. So, here he is, this folk hero, this freedom fighter as they see it. And Matthew tells us that he was a notorious bandit. And almost certainly, Barabbas is the ringleader of his little group. And he's in prison with some of his accomplices, and he is facing a terrible fate. Because someone caught by the Romans in these kind of subversive activities, there was only one possible sentence, and that was flogging until you were almost dead, and then the days-long, potentially, anguish of crucifixion. This is what awaits Barabbas and his accomplices. So imagine Barabbas at dawn, sleeping in his cell, and he wakes up to hear his own name being chanted. Barabbas, Barabbas, what on earth is going on? He hears the shout, crucify him, crucify him. And then the guards come down and they unlock his cell 
And they say, Barabbas, this is your lucky day. It's your lucky day, mate. And they unlock his chains and they escort him up the stairs into the courtyard. This is what Barabbas is about to experience. This guilty man, this criminal, this murderer caught red-handed with no possible defense, whose only fate is the death penalty, is about to be released by Pilate. And you have to ask, why on earth do the crowds ask for Barabbas? And why do they scream for Jesus to be crucified? Here's the guilty released, and then the innocent man being condemned. Why do the crowds suddenly turn on Jesus? I mean, weren't we just reading about the priests being afraid of the crowds? Concerned about some kind of riot against them if they arrested Jesus? Why do the crowds suddenly turn on Jesus? I think it's this, that right up until the moment of Jesus' arrest, the crowds were expecting him to be someone just like Barabbas. Someone like Barabbas, but who could also do miracles. Someone like Barabbas, who also had power over nature. Imagine this guy at the head of the Jewish army launching the final assault on Pilate's fortress. This is the guy we need to fulfill our cherished dreams of victory over Rome and national liberation. And they held on to that right up until the moment of Jesus' arrest. And then when Jesus is taken and he refuses to resist the arrest, and they realize this guy has some kind of death wish. He has some kind of death wish and they abandon him. He is not, he's clearly not the savior that we are looking for. Barabbas. Barabbas is our guy. Barabbas might be a brutal fellow. He might be a murderer, but he is effective. Barabbas is the kind of guy who gets the job done. And this sort of person always appeals to those who consider themselves oppressed. People love a strong man. You wonder why these strong men are successful in different countries around the world? They're there with massive popular support. People love a strong man. And Jesus, to their disappointment, is not a strong man. Do you know why people love a strong man? Because he helps them blame others instead of themselves. The strong man is always pointing to some external threat, some enemy out there who is threatening the state. However much we might be suffering, he focuses your attention to the enemy attacking you. And we're all a lot more comfortable with this. Shrieking for justice, never against ourselves, but against those that we believe are enemies of ourselves and of whatever group that we happen to belong to. And Barabbas validates that universal human desire. And Jesus, ah, Jesus does not. Because instead of blaming other people, Jesus has this very offensive way of pointing his finger at our own sin. And he's coming up with these uncomfortable parables that seem to suggest that we are the ones who are enemies of God. And he doesn't sign up for what we all accept, that we are the favored ones, God's chosen people on whom no harm could ever come. 
Jesus is questioning that. And that is very offensive, and they are sick of it. Jesus has disappointed them. And like all of us, they are merciless against someone who has disappointed him. They do not want Jesus to be free. They do not want him to suffer and languish in prison for years. They start screaming out, prompted by the Jewish leaders, crucify him, crucify him, get rid of this guy, we're sick of him, he must die. And Pilate feebly tries to interrupt them. Why? Why? What crime has this man committed? And the answer, of course, is no crime at all. He has committed no crime at all. He's gone about the land doing good, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, casting out demons. He has done nothing wrong, but he must die. Everyone knows he's innocent. The Jewish leaders know he's innocent. That's why they need to manufacture false witnesses and false charges against him. Pilate knows he's innocent. The crowds know he's innocent, but he's not the one they want, and he must die. And Pilate is losing control of this situation. And it's not good for the Roman governor to be seen to be losing control of the situation. So he has no choice but to satisfy the mob. He has some idea of justice, to be honest. I think he just opposes the Jewish leaders on principle because he enjoys opposing them. If he has a sense of justice, it only goes so far. And he looks at this ragged Jewish peasant and concludes, this is not a guy worth risking my position for. And in the end, what Pilate seeks is not justice, but self-preservation. And so Jesus is condemned. He's not worth it. And imagine Barabbas coming up the stairs from the dungeon into the courtyard, and as he's being led across the courtyard, he sees a man being tied to the flogging post. And the Roman sergeant tells him, don't worry, your cross is not going to waste. Your cross is going to be used today. It's not you who will be crucified between your two accomplices. It is this Jesus of Nazareth who is going to be nailed there. In this story, we have this powerful picture of a guilty person, a criminal, an insurrectionist, being released, and the innocent man going to die. To die almost certainly on the very cross that had been tagged with Barabbas' name. The verdict is spoken over Jesus, guilty. And the sentence is uttered, you are hereby condemned to death. You will be flogged and then crucified until your life is over. The story in Mark 15 is a powerful picture of Christ, the innocent one, being condemned in place of the guilty. The guilty Barabbas goes free, and Christ is condemned to death. We all have guilt. We all have guilt that must be faced up to. One way or the other, your guilt must be faced up to. 
And we all hate that idea, don't we? When I was a little boy, I, I stole a can of pork and beans. I enjoyed stealing things from my mom's pantry. I don't know why. It was just the pleasure of stealing it. And I opened this little can of pork and beans, and I took a couple bites of it. And trust me, cold pork and beans are not very good. And then I had to get rid of the evidence, so I took this can and I climbed to the top of a tree in our backyard and I left the can in the crook of a branch. And months later, my sister Martina was climbing that tree and she found this rusty can. And she immediately scrambled down the tree and raced in to report to my parents the evidence of some crime that had been committed. And she knew, she knew it was me. And... I scrabbled in my defense. In fact, my defense was so convincing that I convinced my parents that she was the one who had actually stolen this (laughs) and had somehow contrived to report it herself to shed the attention onto me, and she got punished for this crime. (laughs) And, you know, we're all laughing because it's a funny story, but not all my crimes are so funny. And I have done a lot of selfish and nasty things in my life, and I have always fiercely resisted being caught and sentenced. Every child I know of resists admitting they are guilty. It's one of the hardest things to do as a parent, to get your kids to fess up. And when I was a little boy, I would stand in my dad's study. He knew, he knew I'd done something wrong. I knew that he knew. We both knew. But I would stand there and keep my mouth shut and refuse, refuse to utter the words, I did something wrong. And I still find this very difficult to do. And I will take refuge in lies and in deceit. I will squirm any way to get out of admitting that I have sinned against someone, that I have done something shameful and nasty. And let's be honest, we're all the same way. No one enjoys confessing sin. And we all put up the good front, and we all are very careful not to get in a position where we're caught and we have to face up to our guilt. We've become used, very used in recent years to politicians and celebrities and pastors after a long career as an honored person, finally at the end, being caught out in something awful, and having to face up to their guilt. And no one is able to do it. They all, to a man, resist admitting guilt. And we all find it very painful having to admit our guilt. But this is what God asks us to do as the first step in repentance. And the only way you can have the courage to stand before God and say, I am guilty, is with the assurance that that guilt has been placed on the head of Christ. It's the only way you can be honest before God without fear is if you know, you trust, you believe that Christ has taken all accusations against you on his own shoulders. Your guilt must be faced up to, and you cannot face up to it, and so Jesus faces up to your guilt for you. 
Notice at this point in the story, all the disciples have vanished. They have fled in shame, and Jesus, the true king of Israel, is going alone to the place of condemnation. He is willingly entering Pilate's hall to take on himself the guilt of all of his people. And so Christ is condemned, and his people are vindicated. Jesus is a very different king from Barabbas. Barabbas is freed, but his followers must die. Jesus is condemned, and his followers go free. This is a story of Jesus before Pilate, but behind it is Jesus before God. Being accused and condemned for his people. And he's willingly standing there according to the plan of God, taking all this upon himself. And this is the reason we sing. This is the foundation of our joy. Listen to Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, God who vindicates, God who puts people in the rights. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. There is condemnation at the heart of the gospel. Condemnation is at the heart of Christianity, and it's not condemnation against you. It's condemnation against the Savior that God has appointed, Jesus Christ. And he's not only died for you, he is living now to intercede for you. Jesus is totally silent on his own behalf, but he's not silent on your behalf. He is very vocal in resisting every accusation the enemy brings against you, and Jesus says, that accusation has been dealt with. I have died for that accusation, and no one can be charged twice for the same crime. That has been dealt with. The guilt has been absorbed. It's no longer an issue. In Leviticus chapter 14, there is the regulation for how lepers were to be dealt with once they were cleansed. Two birds were brought to the priest. The first bird was slaughtered. Then they would take the second bird, trembling in the hand of the priest, and they would dip its wings in the blood of the first bird and then let it go to fly over the open fields. And this is exactly what God does with everyone who trusts in Jesus. He dips your wings in the blood of Christ so that you can be free to fly over the open fields. There's an invitation here for all of us. It's the free gift of God. This is not the reward for wonderful, holy, awesome followers of God. This is for nasty, guilty people, for murderers, for insurrectionists, for the people who are shrieking out, crucify him, crucify him. However nasty you are, whatever things are bothering your conscience this afternoon, you are invited to come to Christ, to lay your own hand on him in faith and feel your own sin being transferred onto the head 
of the Lamb of God. Our worship comes at a terrible cost. Our freedom comes at a terrible cost, the death of God's own Son. But it is a cost that God is willing to pay. He is glad to pay. And Jesus faces the cross, his heart full of the joy set before him. He is standing there out of love for you and for me. And it is offered to all of us. Shall we pray? God, we thank you that you have loved the world so much that you've given your only son. Not so that we would be condemned, but that we would be saved through him. Lord, I pray for everyone here with a guilty conscience. Everyone here who hesitates to come near to you, who feels themselves to be guilty or worthless or whatever they're dealing with, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of their hearts to the glory of your gospel. The surprising, shocking offer of freedom from guilt, vindication before you, our sins completely transferred to the head of Christ. Oh, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to believe this. We are so hesitant. Fill our hearts with faith, O oh Lord. Take us by the hand and lead us to Jesus, our high priest, our intercessor, our true king. In his name we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.